You're listening to the MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. Human beings, we really want to solve problems. We don't want to talk about what the problems are and what the root cause is. We just want to get through it and, and get the thing fixed. Hi, I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of MEX. That was Scott Weiss, my guest on the show today, talking about that most human of tendencies to dive into solving problems as soon as they appear on our radar, rather than maybe spending a little bit more time to get a true understanding of where that problem comes from, and therefore perhaps what the solution might be. It's something I think we're all guilty of at times. It's something which I've seen happen time and again in sessions where people are trying to push forward the experience design of a particular product or service. Uh, And it's something that Scott and I get to talking about in a few different contexts. He's currently VP of product design at Babbel, um, a German company which teaches people how to speak languages. But The arc of his career spans really some of the most interesting moments around digital experience design and how that's evolved. And we talk about the different ways in which he's encountered it over the years and what he's learned along the way doing that. But I'll come back to Scott and tell you a little bit more about him in a moment. But if you're a new listener to the show, um, and I can see that every time we release one of these episodes, we are getting considerable number of new listeners, which is great. Welcome. Hello. Um, and uh, if you have been listening to this for some time, it's great to see you coming back for more. Let me get you up to speed on a few of the things that's been happening in our MEX community. As people who've been listening to the show for a while will know, one of the things that we have uh, ongoing is this MEX dining club where we bring together people who have been on this podcast, people who have spoken at the conferences previously, people who have been involved in the community for, for some uh, some ways uh, over a number of years. And we did the most recent dinner in London. We had a, a discussion theme which was suggested by one of the Dining Club members and a long-time listener to this show, Dr. Caitlin MacDonald. And she wanted to get people thinking about this notion of how the digital tools that we use interact with the kind of physical spaces that we work in and how that affects our working practice. Uh, So we sat down around the table at a a Korean barbecue restaurant in London with a a bunch of people from the MEX community. And I really found it a a fascinating evening. These discussion themes that we have obviously are something to get the conversation going. But as much as anything else, these evenings are just a great excuse to catch up with what people have been up to and really the the diverse range of things that are going on um, among practitioners who are involved in our MEX community. So it's always fascinating to hear those kind of stories. But on this theme around the intersection of of digital tools and and physical space, uh, there were a few things that it it got me thinking about. One of the things which it came back to was how people talked about the idea that creative thought often comes from certain actions for them. Someone had a story about how actually it was the action of doing the vacuuming, which often prompted their most creative thought. Other people were talking about the idea that They really only have that sort of creative impetus come to them when they're in places that they're not 
required to think, like when they're on holiday, for instance, you know, when they actively have said to themselves, you don't need to think about these particular problems, these particular things that you're doing in the working environment. That was when these creative thoughts kind of came up unexpectedly. And it got me thinking about this uh, notion of, of control. And this is something which we've seen in a few ways with the MEX conference over the years, that when an element of control is taken out of your own hands, like Mex in previous years, we've done sessions where unexpectedly we'll change the shape of the agenda and we'll take people out of the conference building, for instance, go and do a quick field trip, something unexpected and where they have to trust the facilitation process that they're going through. Often that leads to the kind of creative breakthroughs that create the most interesting ideas. So it was a really interesting evening. Thank you to everyone who came along to that one. Uh, and we've got some more of these dining clubs coming up, which I hope uh, more of the listeners to this show will come along and join in. The next one is actually going to be a bit of an impromptu thing, which we hadn't uh, planned originally. I'm going to be at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, which is the, the huge show for the mobile industry each year. And we're going to do a Mex dining club on the 26th of February. That's going to be at 8.30 in a venue which is pretty easy to reach from where the the conference centre is and has been recommended by uh, someone I know in Barcelona who has taken me out for very good meals when I've been there previously. So I'm hoping this one will measure up to expectations. As with all Mex Dining Club events, it's a relaxed informal affair. There are no presentations. There are no pitches. It's just a group of people who share your interests in user-centered design getting together around a table. There are 10 seats for this one. Uh, They do tend to fill up quickly. So if that's something you'd like to come along to, then just get in touch and I can send you across an invite with all of the details. If you're not able to make the Barcelona gathering, then on the 26th of March, we have the next one coming up in London. And again, if that's something which you're keen in getting involved with, just drop me a note and I can make sure you get all the details for that one. So let's get back to Scott Weiss. Uh, As I mentioned before, he's currently VP of Product Design at Babbel. But I've known Scott for a slightly worrying number of years, really. And when I think back to some of the first presentations that he gave at our early MEX conferences, which would have been back in sort of 2005, 2006, if there's one thing which really sticks out in my memory, it was this kind of polite intensity that he had. Now, there are a whole bunch of people who spoke at those early conferences that we did who have all gone on to do influential things around digital experience design. One of the things which marked Scott out at that time was that while everyone was clearly full of all kinds of creative ideas that went on to play a role in where mobile technology went, uh, Scott came with the data to back up those ideas. He really was quite pioneering in the way he applied rigor to the kind of quantitative ways in which he backed up some of these qualitative understandings that he was getting from the user testing he was doing at the time. And he'd founded this design agency called Usable Products Company in New York that was doing that kind of work for a bunch of different clients from operators to to handset manufacturers. Uh, So Scott spent some time running that. He then went on to uh, have a leading user experience role at the Symbian Foundation. He did a similar thing with SwiftKey, the keyboard, 
uh, input keyboard, which um, was then acquired by Microsoft. He spent time agency side with agencies like Human Factors International. And now at Babbel, he's helping them to change the way in which people learn languages uh, through digital means. So we talk about all those different things, some of um, Scott's interests, some of the things which he's been thinking about in relation to how you build teams and the various different skills which experienced designers might need in the future to thrive in this uh, new environment. And I came away for it learning a bunch of stuff about Scott, which despite having known him for years, I didn't know before. So it was a conversation I thoroughly enjoyed. I hope you do too. I'll be back at the end to fill you in on a little more of what's going on in the world of mechs. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to join me this morning. Merrick, it's a, it's a pleasure to be back with you. I guess I should probably warn you right at the start here. This is probably going to be the kind of conversation which makes us both feel a bit old. I mean, when I think back to the early days of our MEX initiative, which is itself like 15 odd years ago now, you were not only one of the people who was actively developing the methods around mobile user experience back then, you'd already actually been doing it for some years prior to that, just to put this in a a bit of context. And that's, that's actually the fun part. I really like going back through and, and reliving those old memories. But I mean, let's start a bit closer to the present, I think. Given that depth and the variety of experiences you've had over your career, I'd love to know how this current role came about. I mean, clearly this isn't your first rodeo with this stuff. So what do you look for these days before you take on a new user experience challenge like the things that you're doing at Babbel? I look, I look for something that's meaningful. Um, I, it, finding a role to lead a, a design team is there are loads of those roles available all over the world. And with Babel, what really struck me about this role was that it was a product I already cared deeply about. And my journey into this company took several months because I really wanted this job. When I first moved to Berlin, I came here with no specific purpose. You know, my role had finished in London and I, I wanted a break from London. And I enrolled in um, intensive German courses at the Goethe Institute. And I was staying in a, a temporary place. And my host said one evening, you know, come for dinner. And he asked, how's the homework going in your German class? And I said, well, you know, I'm wondering if I'm going to actually do the homework. I'm probably just going to use one of these online apps uh, like Duolingo, which is, has been super popular. And he said, well, why don't you try Babbel? And I said, well, why not? So I gave it a try and I immediately fell in love with the app. It pulled me in in a way that no onboarding sequence ever really has. And over the next few months, I did what I could to get to know the people who work at Babbel. And eventually I went to a trade group event that was hosted at Babbel. And as a surprise, uh, Marcus Vita, um, Babel CEO, introduced the event. And as soon as he finished speaking, I, I stood up and tapped him on the shoulder. And he was very startled, of course. But then, then I said to him, I said, you know, Marcus, I, I, I love Babel. I use it every day. And I would love to come to work with you to make it better. And um, spent a couple of hours talking to him. 
and the chief marketing officer who was still there on a, a Friday evening. And then two weeks later, I had a job offer, and it was a really wonderful way to start a new point in my career. Now, were you coming to German entirely for the first time there, or, or was this building on some German language skills that you had had originally? When I arrived in Germany in April of 2016, I didn't even know how to pronounce the language. So my German learning journey uh, really started on that first day of school. What was it in Babel that grabbed your attention, do you think? I mean, you mentioned there the, the onboarding experience, but were there other things within it which made you feel like this was something that you could get stuck into and that you could really want to contribute to the development of? Well, the onboarding sequence is really obviously designed to get people to spend more time with the product and to give the registration information and then to want to take on more lessons for which they have to subscribe. But uh, what got me to want to work for the company is that I saw lots of opportunity to make the product better. And that's what I love doing. I don't, I don't want to go work for somebody whose product is already fantastic and I can't see ways to improve it. I want to work somewhere where I can make a really big difference. And that's what excited me most because, you know, one, I think of Babel as a place where we help people help themselves uh, make themselves even better by learning new languages. But then I wanted to be able to help the organization to go through that period from being phenomenally successful, but then to go to hockey stick growth and reach a lot more people so that they can do the same thing. They can help themselves learn. This is almost like a, a microcosm of the, the macro challenge, I think, which faces a lot of user experience practitioners. Here, you've got an area which has caught your interest. And then you have that potentially quite difficult conversation there with the CEO, with the, the founder of an, an organization, where really you have to say to them, this is good, this is interesting, but I think we can make it better. And it sort of strikes me that that's a skill which is pretty fundamental to being a user experience practitioner, agency side, in-house. Yeah, there's always that challenge of navigating what can potentially be quite a difficult subject with people who have created something or who have the skills to implement it and finding a way to, to show them that there's a collaboration there which can help it to improve further through that lens of user-centered design. How did you how did you navigate it in that moment? It sounds like it went pretty well because you ended up having a job at the organization from that conversation. But um, you know, how, do you find that over the years you've developed some some techniques for navigating those potentially tricky waters? Um, absolutely. Uh, with the the early conversations with Marcus, one of the things that really attracted me to working with him and with Babel are that he said, you know, we really need somebody at Babel who who can tell us that something just isn't good enough and that we and that we have to do better. And he really meant that. But the way I approach things isn't to go and tell people that what they've done isn't good enough. I mean, I learned from my early days of doing usability testing that my job was to tell people that their baby was ugly. And that's a horrible thing to have to do. Um, it's super critical in usability testing to find the areas where people struggle and the things that the, the target audience doesn't like and to improve it. But I found it much more valuable to get things right earlier in the sequence by understanding the target audience, by creating rapid 
prototypes and putting it in front of people to iterate on ideas so that by the time we ship it, nobody has to say it's not good enough, but we can say with confidence that it's not just good enough, but it's fantastic. And then we find out with quantitative results from A-B testing or smaller drops where we can do version over version testing and things like that, that things are really good. Those methods have really helped me at Babel, but they've helped me in prior roles as well. And I, I've been learning that along the way and hope that I still have quite a lot to learn. Yeah, I mean, I guess it sounds like there's, there's a very human nuance to that, that skill of being able to get people along on the journey with you and to feel that sense of shared ownership of those improvements and taking on the challenges that you identify. You know, once you get that sense of, of shared ownership of, of the problem and that you're on a journey together to improve, maybe that's when things start to become easier. It, the, the shared journey is is absolutely important. And, you know, a, a super important thing that I've learned is leadership by influence is much more valuable and successful than pure authoritative leadership. And I've been working on those skills in uh, absolutely in my last two roles, uh, more than in the rest of my career. But the first role that I had out of university was an influence-based management role. And so those skills are, are pretty firmly rooted, but they can always use some improvement. So where was that very first role? My absolute first role was an internship at Apple back in 1989 uh, while I was still in university. But when I finished school, I started work at Microsoft. And the project that I was on was in the mail group. And what, we, what I was tasked to do was to create a scheduling application for Macintosh. And up until then, I'd never actually been to a meeting in a conference room that was scheduled in advance. So I had quite a learning curve. And from Seattle, the development team was based in London, uh, which maybe was the beginning of my you know, long-term love affair with London, but only from afar at the time. But I had to, I had to learn everything about office life, including how to create a scheduling application. That application eventually became Outlook. Wow. I mean, that's, yeah, that's going right back to the, the very origins of some of these tools, which we now take for, for granted. So uh, this is something which I guess I've tried to talk in many ways with with different guests on the show about but i'm always curious as to how that path itself started you you went into the technology industry two companies which obviously have become incredibly well known have come to dominate that that tech scene and when you talk to to some people who've been along similar paths it came from a love of the technology when you talk to others it was more uh, a love of understanding people and and psychology for others it was a route which was driven more by art or design are you able to trace it back to one specific motivation you know in your own education your own childhood which made you start down that path there there was one moment and i don't think i'm unique in this but it was uh, 1984 when the uh, the macintosh came out i saw that device and immediately wanted to use it and then after i used it i really desperately wanted to work on it and by work on it i don't mean have one in front of me with a keyboard and a mouse i meant i wanted to be one of those people that that was developing that technology and making it better and i pursued working at apple with the same degree of effort that i pursued babel and that's actually one of the things that makes me love my job today as the the best place to work where I've ever been. But getting that job at Apple, it was super hard to get to the right group in the right way, but it was absolutely worth every effort. When you were 
at Apple doing that internship, what was the, the current flagship product? Was this still on Macintosh at, at that time? Because that was a few years after, I guess, your first Macintosh experience. How had things developed? So that was, um, we were trying, we were building System 7 from System 6. And the biggest differences between System 6 and System 7 were in the way the device, or the way the operating system treated color. And the challenges that we were facing were in System 6, um, all the icons were uh, black outlines around a white, white set of content. And you could color your icons by just changing that outline color to one of, I think, six or seven different colors. And we wanted to go to full color icons. And we needed to figure out a mechanism for showing the appearance of a selected icon versus a non-selected icon. And that was my first challenge. And uh, what I proposed and we eventually went with was, you know, design with a pastel color set with dark outlines and then swap the pastels for darker tones to show selection. And it seems super obvious today, but we tried so many different models at the time. And that was actually one of the approaches of the Macintosh Human Interface Group is we, tr we tried everything and we went with what worked best for uh, the users. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's often the case with things which now seem fundamental today that there had to be that pioneering moment with them and the sign that you hit on something which is right is when it then just feels innate several years later it becomes just part of the way people do things yeah absolutely and and that's actually part of the struggle and the joy with invention is when once the invention is already in in the market it, it seems like oh well that's as fundamental as the wheel Except when those things come about, it, they're not obvious to the inventors until until that aha moment. And even when I was proposing that solution, there were people who doubted it. They were like, oh, it's going to be technically hard. You know, why don't we take this other approach? It's going to also be quite limiting. Everybody's got to design in pastel colors. But in the end, everybody agreed it was a great first step. And of course, things today are a little bit different. But it was a really nice way to get going. So, so the, these motivations here, Scott, around wanting to improve things around that that love of invention. I mean, obviously, they've manifest in the, the tech industry, but they, they sound to me like some of the real kind of classic characteristics of people who consider themselves tinkerers, in, inventors, makers. Uh, is that something which you also do in other ways um, in, in your spare time? I mean, are you a, a workshop sort of a guy with uh, you know other areas aside from, from technology? My workshop is really my kitchen. I really love to cook and to bake. And that gives me the freedom to experiment. And when things go wrong, it, it can just go into the, uh, the bio waste and I can start all over again. And when they go right, I get to share them with others. So in a way, it's kind of the same, but it's very different. It, you know, working with my fingers and getting things dirty, which is a lot different from, you know, dragging the mouse or, or moving a stylus around. So I want to go back a bit to something that you alluded to earlier about overcoming those challenges of taking people along on a journey with you and building consensus in, in often complex situations. Because as I remember, you spent time at the Symbium Foundation running what was known as their UI council. Now, some listeners, I guess, will be familiar with Symbian, but for those who are not, it was very much a, a consortium. Um, this was a group of quite influential companies in their own areas coming together to try to drive forward a common platform that was, at the time, the dominant smartphone platform for devices around the world. And I'm wondering, in a situation like that, when you have influential partners, all with quite strong agendas of their own, 
trying to form some sort of way forward around something as complex as user interface guidelines, user experience, how you go about taking on a challenge like that? It, it was actually the most challenging role in my career and also the most educational. Um, I got to meet some very, very interesting people on the hardware, software, and operator side of the market. And I got to really know a lot of people on the Nokia side. Uh, Nokia had uh, acquired Symbian software, which was the smartphone operating system on so many millions of devices. And they then open sourced the asset and formed the Symbian Foundation to look after that asset. And my role was as a technology manager for the user interface. So I was responsible for making everything better, but with no direct control. On the one hand, my performance was measured by the contributions I was able to get from the community to making things better, and also working with Nokia to influence them to take in the needs of the other partners in the foundation so that everyone was able to leverage the operating system with their very specific and competing needs. Do you see parallels with what's happening around Android at the moment, You know, where you have what is ostensibly an open source operating system where it has elements of open source, but then you have a very strong influence from Google as the creator of that, and then numerous different partners who are all producing versions of it. Do you think this is a later manifestation of some of those same challenges that you were taking on with Symbian? I think that the challenges faced by Android device manufacturers are a bit different. Um, well, well, there's some things that, you, okay, so there's some things that are very similar and some things that are very different. Things that are similar, uh, Google controls Android almost 100%. Google really creates the standard for the operating system and an incredibly excellent version of it with their own phones. And that was happening with Nokia as well. Uh, what's different is that the Android device manufacturers have more ability to customize the user experience than the Symbian device manufacturers were able to with the Nokia um, asset of Symbian at the time. And I think part of it was the time and Nokia was new to open source, as were all of the partners in the Symbian Foundation. And part of it was that Nokia wasn't finished with the next generation of the operating system, which was going to be substantially different from prior iterations. And the, the shame of it is that Nokia never really released devices with that next generation. The whole project kind of came to a close before that happened. And the delays around that time were so significant that at Symbian Foundation, we were forced to come up with our own innovative ways to iterate the operating system. So it was a really, really difficult time. And of course, we all know how it, how it finished with Nokia selling to Microsoft and then Microsoft gradually closing down their phone division, uh, which is a real shame. Uh, but the project was really fun when we were doing that innovative stuff. And I've seen some of the things that we were doing at Symbian Foundation in devices today, which is kind of cool. Well, I guess often it's those most challenging experiences in a career which then go on to be most useful in, in some way, shape or form later down the line. You're able to extract some of those skills and apply them to, to new challenges, perhaps, or, or to new technologies as they emerge. Uh, but you also spent time at SwiftKey, which uh, I guess um, continued that 
influence over the, the input methods, the experience of using mobile devices. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with what SwiftKey was and, and still is, um, maybe you could just give a, a you know brief um, introduction to how that came about and why you're interested in working on it. One of my colleagues at uh, the Symbiote Foundation, uh, James Ailey, he um, sent me a message one day and said, you know, hey, what do you think about coming and joining us at, at SwiftKey? We're looking for somebody like you. And I didn't know very much about SwiftKey at the time, but I, I learned a lot about it very quickly. But what uh, SwiftKey was and is, is the leading predictive keyboard for mobile devices, especially smartphones. So as we all know that typing on a smartphone just on a sheet of glass is, is quite tricky. And the predictive input um, was evolving very quickly, but what SwiftKey did was they put three most likely predictions immediately above the keyboard uh, for the user to select. They pioneered that design, which has then been uh, borrowed uh, by other companies for the same thing. But the SwiftKey prediction technology was amazing. It could almost type for you. And there was even, there were even games where people would do SwiftKey poetry just tapping the prediction to see what would come out. And my role there was as design, and my responsibility wasn't to make it look better, but to make it better. And in the time that I was there, I was there for a couple of years, we went from being the best-selling smartphone keyboard to being a free keyboard where we attempted to sell keyboard themes, which were ways to decorate the keyboard. And we were moving into other ways to monetize the business uh, when Microsoft acquired the company. Yeah, it's been, I think, probably one of the longest standing features of all the mobile devices that I've used myself. SwiftKey is like one of the first things that I install every time I get a new device because it, it continues to this day to be such a useful thing. And I'm wondering what those kind of underpinnings are. I mean, the terms now around artificial intelligence and, and machine learning seem to be used, perhaps overused. Um, but uh, to what degree was the SwiftKey engine underpinned by those principles? So around the time that I was at SwiftKey, the engineering team was exploring using neural networks to make a keyboard. And I know that that is a big part of how they do their predictions today. But we did so much interesting technology exploration and it took me a really, really long time to find designers who could really think in the ways that were necessary to come up with better ways to do predictive input. Uh, we were trying different keyboards that didn't offer the choice of the next prediction, that it was automatic. Uh, and we tried things with more predictions and fewer predictions and different ways of making those selections. And the SwiftKey audience was an extremely dedicated group um, who were very, very reluctant for their keyboard experience to change. And we had to take them along the journey. So every time we made changes to the keyboard, we had to make sure that the existing user base was really happy about those changes, or we wouldn't be able to um, achieve the success that the keyboard had prior. Is that something which you're seeing as an ongoing challenge in your current role? I mean, this seems to me to be something which recurs with quite a few of the people I've spoken to on this podcast with sessions we've had at our MEX conference, where particularly when you've got a very motivated user base and a long established user base, there's always that difficulty of striking the balance between people love it, 
people are passionate about it, but we know that there are new things that we can develop. How do we balance the introduction of novel features with making sure we don't break the experience that people know and love? Now, that's an actual contrast that I can uh, bring to the conversation because at Babel, the struggle that we have is to get people to really stick to language learning. Um, language learning is one of the hardest things that we can do intellectually because it's, yeah, I mean, one's mother tongue is so burned into our brains and learning a new language requires so much dedication and practice that it's really easy for people to buy a subscription, use it for a day or two, and then set it aside a lot like a gym membership. Uh, you know, people feel good just having that gym membership or that Babel subscription. But what we really are committed to and our mission is everyone learning languages, which is not a sentence, but three very important separate but related terms. Uh, we want the software to be for everyone, um, whether they're rich or poor, young or old, uh, polyglot or a real struggler to learn languages. And learning is at the core of what we do. And of course, language is the way that we uh, function content wise. But our audience isn't super terribly attached to the software itself, uh, but we do have, on the other hand, an incredible body of content that we've created. I think it's um, more than 4,000 lessons, um, or I think it's actually 4,000 courses and lessons. It, it, it's amazing how much language learning, because everything is handcrafted by our didactics team. So when I came to the role, I was a little bit afraid to make change because of that experience that we had at SwiftKey, where any change that we made was met with great criticism. But what I've learned here at Babel is when we make changes, our audience are super happy as long as things are easier or nicer to look at or more engaging. So it's a it's a really, really positive experience when we make change here. Yeah, I guess that, that must differ from product to product and, and industry to industry then, and probably quite exciting to be in a place where you feel like there's greater reception or greater receptability to those those kind of changes. It, it's incredibly refreshing. And it's also really nice to see um, how things change quantitatively uh, from audience behavior. When we make changes to the learning experience, we immediately want to find out whether it gets people to complete more lessons, to um, come back to the software the next day or more times in the next week. And when we achieve those successes, it's a real victory for us. With a keyboard, on the other hand, getting people to type more isn't the goal. It's just keeping them inside the keyboard. Uh, that's interesting that you mentioned the, the quantitative element to that, because it, it makes me think back to, I guess, some of the earliest conversations that you and I had and some of the early presentations you gave at our MEX conferences over the years, where one of the things which always struck me about them was the degree to which you felt it was very important to be able to articulate the metrics around certain things and show a body of evidence which spanned both a data set and also a set of qualitative observations, which at the time, I think there would seem to be a much greater diversion between those two schools of thought, which thankfully seems to have come back together now more, I think, within the mainstream. But at the time that you were doing it, and this would have been 
I guess 2005 was our, our first MEX conference. Um, I remember you presenting on that theme and you know showing some really quite granular data about the usability testing you've been doing. And interesting to see that that continues to this day. Oh yeah, thanks for reminding me because that was that was a long time ago. But what we what we did, I, I was running a usable products company at the time, which is a, a tiny agency that I started when I moved to New York in um, what was it? It was uh, 1996. Uh, you know, I moved there, didn't have a job, had come from California, was quite spoiled by being able to take my dog to work and um, and just the, the whole California software industry. And that was the very beginning of the web. Uh, but later on, um, you know, the business changed and uh, I got into the mobile industry by writing handheld usability. And after that, I'm not even sure how I kind of established it, but we were doing a lot of qualitative user testing where we would bring in six individuals and interview them each for an hour about a product. But then in trying to sell into the mobile telephone operators and manufacturers, they really wanted quantitative results. So I did a lot of research, spoke to a lot of people and did a lot of experiments and then embarked on this new career journey of doing quantitative usability testing. Um, I started with syndicated usability reports where I would have some initial sponsors with an idea and then would sell the same report multiple times. But those reports took us months to generate because we would interview 30 people on each device and run the reports with anywhere from three to 10 different devices. So you can just imagine how much time was spent asking people to do stuff and watching them struggle. Well, and at the time, there was such a variety of different devices on the market as well. When you think about the sort of homogeny there is now around the shape of devices and that broadly speaking, these days you have a choice between Android or iOS. You know, when you were doing that, I guess there must have been a much greater variance between the kind of services and interfaces that people could access on those devices. Oh, yeah. The devices were super, super varied and I mean, the differences were much more interesting than we have today. They were, you know, foldable phones and uh, phones with keyboards. There weren't really touchscreen devices back then, except with styluses, and those were pretty rare. And it was really fun to see everything that would come out all the time. And, you know, of course, today things are much more similar, and we're waiting for that next big thing. But in the meantime, uh, there's still a lot of interesting stuff going on. But back then, everything was changing constantly, and it was really, really hard to keep up. Well, I must admit that in advance of this podcast, I did dig out my own copy of Handheld Usability, your book, from the, the bookshelves. And firstly, it provided a great trip down memory lane because you illustrated it with photographs and, and uh, screenshots from all of these different mobile platforms, which at the time were proliferating. And these days, you know, th there is essentially a choice of, of the, the main two within the, the mainstream. So it provided a, a great bit of nostalgia looking at all of those different interfaces. But you know, I was also struck by how some of the more kind of structural things, the techniques that you were recommending at the time, still to this day really remain very valid and useful bits of advice. So I'm, I'm going to read you a bit here um, and uh, see if you can remember it. So this is the session on the value of the, the debrief uh, as part of the, the product development and, and testing process. And you say in it, define the issues first, i.e. like identify what the problems are with the thing that you've been testing, then return 
to solving the problems. Try to focus on the issues only, since identifying issues is far quicker than trying to solve problems. And it really made me think of, you know, some of the sessions that I myself have been involved in as a consultant and advisor over the last little while, where there is such a tendency among people who have had a responsibility in developing a thing to immediately upon hearing that there are some difficulties with that thing, get down into trying to solve those rather than trying to understand really what those difficulties are and where they come from. Uh, And it seems like advice that even though that book now is, well, coming on for what? 15 years old possibly older still remains very valid to this day yeah it's funny i already I, I, now of course i remember writing that but it, we work in a very different way today but human beings we really want to solve problems we don't want to talk about what the problems are and what the root cause is we just want to get through it and and get the thing fixed and that was a real challenge in working with clients and you know the funny thing is in the room when we were doing user testing it wasn't the designers who were there it was always the people who are at the the other end of the product development cycle who were trying to solve the problem. And so that that technique was really helpful. And we would do a debrief at the end of quite a long day and everybody desperately wanted to go home. Uh, But at the same time, just that natural human urge to solve things would keep us going for a long time. So when you were doing that kind of work with usable products company, you were essentially by your own description, an agency. Whereas you've now also spent a good part of your career working in-house. Now, I'm wondering, given the way in which the agency landscape has evolved since then, whether you have any feelings about what it would mean to be an agency, a user experience agency today. You know, if you were in the position of starting something like Usable Products Company again from scratch today, would you approach it differently to how you did then? Do you think that the role of those kind of external agencies has fundamentally changed? I think agencies are a critical part of how we innovate and evaluate new product concepts and develop them further and get fresh ideas. If I were to start an agency again, and I would be very unlikely to do so, but if I were to do it again, I would start with partners. Because when I started Usable Products Company, I did it on my own and always wanted to find partners, but never found just the right person or set of people to work with. And that was the hardest thing for me, because not only did I have to find the work, but then I had to find the people to get the work done. And then my skill was really doing the work directly. So I always had to edit everything and fit it into place. And it was, it was great when I was in my 20s and 30s. But, but today, I really love working with the team. And that's where my, my skills are. And I, I actually, I have to admit, I really love being client side because I can immerse myself into a problem and solve it and see it go to market and have influence every step of the way. Whereas on the agency side, it's really, you know, just these engagements could be anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months, but it was very rare to see a product all the way through launch. What was different though, was during that usable products period, I got to work with Vodafone for a long time on the Vodafone Simply. And they brought me in very, very, very early in the product cycle when it was just a concept. And I got to work with them all the way through launch of the device. And I still have a couple of the phones. And that was, inc- that was probably the most rewarding work that I did when running the company. When you think about the, the role of, of agencies now, like relative to what you're doing in your in-house role at, at Babel, do you 
use them for anything? Do you see a particular way that they fit into an organization like yours where you, by the sound of it, already have quite a strong in-house team? Absolutely. Agencies are, are an important part of the way that we work. If we want to evaluate a new product concept, it's much easier to hire an agency to come up with some ideas and prototypes that we might test in-house or we might even go to outside services for that. But all of my designers and all of our engineers and product managers are actively working on our core products and even some, some companies that, that we work with separately. Uh, we recently um, acquired a language travel company. And uh, that's one example. We, and we have the, the Babel English test and we have one-on-one video training, Babel Live. So everybody's super busy to carve people away to work on something completely new would starve the core products or we would have to do a lot more hiring. So agencies are a very, very fast way to evaluate something new and also to get some really fresh ideas about something that we've been working on for a really long time. So in both of those cases, they're incredibly valuable. And um, also to teach us stuff. Like I, I brought in an agency recently to help to expand the design thinking practice and mindset within Babel. And that was really successful. And we'll be bringing them back because we keep hiring more people. It's a way to bring people into that way of thinking. Yeah, that challenge around hiring is, is a really interesting one. I'd love to hear a bit more about what your thoughts are on that, not least because you have seen that from a number of different perspectives. You know, obviously you've been, you've led various different teams in-house, but you've also had the agency experience as well. And I'm wondering how your thoughts on what makes up the skill set of the ideal user experience practitioner, the kind of people that you want to join your team has evolved over the years. You know, when you think about the kind of things which are going to be important for your next hires over the next year or so, what's top of the list at the moment? What are the skills that you're looking to either cultivate within people or bring in from, from other areas? The thing that I look for is a good portfolio, and every hiring manager in design will say that. But uh, once I make sure that the design skills are good, the next most important thing is their, their soft skills, their people skills. Because designers, even the best designers, have to communicate their ideas and influence other people to get them built. And so that, that's something that I actually spend most of my time coaching and teaching within my organization and across is just to make sure that those soft skills are really honed and improved over every working experience. The design skill, I rely on the team to teach each other. And I'm really, really lucky that I have a great group of designers here at Babel. And they're also getting to the point now where they coach each other on the soft skill stuff as the team grows and um, I've introduced another level of management, but I, I really love working with the individuals directly too. And are you able to like identify within the day-to-day dedicated bits of time or, or activities which you put aside to allow people to work on, on those skills? Or, or is that something which just comes from the, the day-to-day practice? Well, the the most important thing for us to do is to communicate. And so every... Every day I start with a stand-up in my team where everybody, it's an agile stand-up where everybody talks about what they did the previous day, what they're going to do today, and any challenges that they're facing. We also do uh, team design reviews every week. We allocate a couple of hours for everybody to get a short amount of time to show the work that they're still doing. Not the work that they've completed, but the work that's in progress, because that's when the feedback from their colleagues is most effective. 
and can be most easily employed. And that work within the team enables them to attend stand-ups for the engineering teams that they're part of to get things built properly and to establish and maintain that rapport with their colleagues. At Babel, we've just uh, gone through another iteration in the way that we work in bringing in experience areas and experience groups to lead them. We have many agile teams, and each of those teams is comprised of engineers and product managers. Um, And partly that's because we don't have enough designers and instructional designers to allocate one to each of the agile teams. So what we did was we looked at the learner journey and broke it into three areas and created a cross-functional steering group in each one to help the agile teams prioritize to reduce conflicts and duplication of efforts and to ensure that we're tracking our product strategy but maintaining the strongest level of learner centricity that we possibly can. And are you starting to get a sense yet of how that's paying off or is it still too early? It's extremely early, but it's already paying off. I've started to see better design faster because people just get to focus on the learner problem rather than satisfying the often conflicting needs of all of the different agile team requests. Interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. And it's incredibly gratifying to see, you know, a structural matrix level change having a direct impact on design quality. Now, you've had the chance, Scott, I guess probably more than almost anyone that I've had on this show for to see a whole bunch of different interface generations, not just with mobile, but also with lots of other classes of product as well. And if you think back to your time, you know, starting work at Microsoft with some of the things which then went on to become Outlook. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you before we finish up is whether or not you're seeing anything which excites you about where the next generation of interfaces might come from. I mean, if you think back to when you were talking at some of our first MEX conferences, mobile was very much the cutting edge at that point. And now it's something which I guess has grown to the point where it's become probably the dominant way that people interface with the, the digital world. But are you starting to get any sense of where the next generation of user interfaces might emerge from or where you hope they might emerge from? The the generation that I'm seeing grow rapidly and is proving to be super interesting is voice input. And the combination of voice input with artificial intelligence and machine learning. And the further combination with interaction with displays and voice input. All of those things coming together. It's really hard to do input on a watch. So why not use voice? Um, it's And home automation voice is a super effective way to to control it. But a lot of the challenges that we're facing today, which will be solved over time, you know, for example, who's the one who's commanding the system or requesting of the system, that personalization and individuality of uh, participation is coming. And what I'm really looking for are voice-based games, uh, because that will really change the industry. I'm sure there are going to be different things with augmented and virtual reality and and all of that. But I think that voice is going to have the biggest impact in the next five years. And and possibly linked to those areas of virtual and, and augmented reality. I mean, one of the things which I keep coming back to in those areas is that while we've seen some very interesting experimentation around where the interface is primarily delivered through the visual channel, it kind of strikes me that actually it might make more sense for the dominant part of that interface to be coming through 
voice and, and audio when you think about the way people's attention can be distracted by visual elements. And I wonder whether that's the breakthrough which is needed to actually take that area into the mass market. I think you're you're absolutely right. And, you know, throughout a lot of my career, I've been a skeptic. And one example where I just got something completely wrong is um, at the launch party for my book back in 2002, somebody from Symbian Software was showing me the latest Nokia device with a camera in it. So, the, you know, obviously cameras were just starting to be in, included in feature phones. And I was really skeptical. I was like, how do you take something like a camera and make it so small and put it into a phone? Memory is super expensive. Bandwidth is super expensive. And miniaturization, you know, sure, we're going to be able to eventually do it. But why now? Obviously, I got that wrong. The best cameras in the world are coming up on mobile phones. But I've changed a lot and I'm a lot less skeptical than I used to be. And I think a lot of these challenges with voice are going to go away. And one of my earlier arguments was that in order to use voice effectively, you need to be in a private space. Well, that's not as true as it used to be. You know, even when I've got people over in my living room, I'll, I'll say, hey, Google, and ask the device to do something like change the channel or make the music louder or something like that, because I might not have time to run across the room or want to fiddle with all the different experiences on the phone to find the right app to do that. And I think that that is a little bit of our future. We're going to have a lot more collaboration and multi-user voice input. But we have a lot of exciting opportunity and innovation ahead of us. It reminds me of that old adage that so many of the most significant technological breakthroughs are often characterized by their short-term impact being overestimated, but their long-term impact being underestimated. And you get that initial burst of, of hype and interest around something it then dies off as people identify all of those different sort of hygiene factor problems that make them really difficult to use. Uh, and then people such as yourself come in and start to address those one by one. And it then becomes something which is easier to integrate into the behaviors, the etiquettes, which allow something to, to become mass market. Yeah. I mean, that said, my Google Home most often is an egg timer. <laughs> Well, these are all valuable things. Um, absolutely. Every day I ask what the weather is going to be. and But at the same time, it starts to create this need for other things. And that that desire to get the device to do more is what is, in fact, going to drive that next wave of innovation. Um, the more we want from these devices, the more um, and interfaces, the more they're going to deliver. Okay. So I have to ask you before we finish up, Scott, um, given the variety of things and the, the amount of time that you've been doing it and, and have worked on over your career. Is there anything that you still have a burning desire to work on that you haven't yet had the chance to do? Yeah, either related to what you've been doing already or a whole new area. It sounds like uh, the cooking and uh, kitchen part of your life is something which could be a passion for the future. I'm, I'm really torn between going in two directions. On the one hand, I think about reducing the amount that I work and starting a very slow foray into retirement. And on the other hand, I'm still pretty ambitious. And I think that running a product organization might be my next step. I've been running design organizations for a long time and getting more and more involved in conceiving, planning, prototyping and iterating and delivering product. And so I don't know which way I'm going to go because I can't do both at the same time. 
Well, you're going to have to let me know if you do land on that product idea and keep me posted on it is because I'll be fascinated to see where it goes given the experiences that you've had over the years. But, you know, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to come on the show and, and talk about all this again, Scott. It's been way too long since we caught up and uh, I hope we'll do it again soon in the future. Oh, I really hope so too. Thank you very much for including me today. So what did you think? Did you enjoy that one? I mean, for me, uh, I relish those kind of conversations when you get a chance to chat with someone who has seen such a depth and breadth of the different ways in which experience-led design can be applied to the world of digital. That part in particular where Scott was talking about the way in which they are defining these uh, experience areas of the overall product that they've got at Babel, and then appointing a designer who can sit across a number of different cross-functional areas and contribute to the different agile teams that are responsible for developing those features and exert influence then in a way which connects back to the kind of experience-led journey which might help the product to evolve over the long term. You know, I found that a particularly fascinating area and a, a technique which I think a lot of us could probably apply to those tricky situations where clearly you have uh, an engineering effort which is progressing in one way and then you have a desire to shape the experience in relation to the kind of feedback that you're getting from customers in another. Um, no matter how good an organization is at marrying up those things, you can always do better at making sure that happens in a smooth way. And I, I thought it was very interesting some of the things that Scott is trying there with his team to make that happen. So there will be links to all of the things that Scott and I talked about, like his book, Handheld Usability, uh, all of the different things that he's been involved with over the years in the show notes. And you can find those at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Now, a couple of reminders about things in the MEX community that you might be interested in getting involved with. Our dining club next two events are Barcelona alongside Mobile World Congress on the 26th of February uh, and then again in London uh, on the 26th of March. If you'd like to come along to those uh, or if you're out in Barcelona and you're interested in catching up about all things emerging technology, user behavior and designing digital experiences, then just drop me a note and it would be great to see if we could get you along to one of the dinners or to meet up in Barcelona. I'll be back again soon with another episode of the MEX podcast. In the meantime, don't forget that we have the archive now of over 50 episodes, which you can dig into. And do please have a think about other people that you might know who'd enjoy listening to these. These kind of personal recommendations are the best way to get new listeners involved with the show. So if you can think of anyone who you think would uh, enjoy one of these episodes, then do please send them over to mobileuserexperience.com where they can grab all of those episodes and get listening. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.